Glad you're all here this evening. I'm going to ask Joe Barrett to open us in prayer and then we'll get started, Joe. Okay, this is session four with three to go, maybe. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate, like I said, all y'all being here tonight. Sometimes it's kind of hard to get over here this time of evening. But let me just spend a couple of minutes, for those who may not have been here last week, just to touch on the points we discussed and the things we went over last week. We saw that the early church fathers testified to the concept of the Trinity. We talked about the political environment, which in fact inhibited open dialogue leading up to the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., And we talked about the fact that the early church was moved to hammer out the doctrinal understanding of the Trinity because of the various heretical teachings that were popping up here and there. And we talked specifically, even though there are more heresies that we'll touch on as we go on, we touched on four primarily, Gnosticism, Modalism, Adoptionism, and Arianism. And we spent time talking about each one of those. Let me just say the bottom line is that these heresies deny the Trinity. And by doing so, they cut the heart out of the gospel and the Christian faith. They deny the Trinity and they deny either the deity of Christ or his incarnation. And that's what the church fathers were were trying to fence off from uh, the cause of God and truth and the cause of the gospel. So tonight, we're finally going to get to where we talk specifically about the Nicene Creed. That's what we've been leading up to. So as we get started here, let me just ask, how many of you are familiar somewhat with the Nicene Creed? You've all, most people have read it at least once in their lifetime. We don't recite it here at church, even though there are a number of of uh, churches and denominations that do recite it on a regular basis. But we're finally going to get to the point of talking about that. However, I wanted to start by saying that the doctrine of God in general forms a framework for the development of the Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine. And I I think I used the word Orthodox a couple of times last week. Uh, Does that... Is that word strange to some of you, or do you think you have a fairly good idea of what that means when I say orthodox? Anybody want to offer a, a, a an explanation? Anyone? Okay. Orthodox comes from the Greek word uh, orthos, orthos and doxa. This means uh, straight. Uh, right, correct, and this means opinion, basically, but that's the etymology, and uh, w- words aren't, what a word means isn't always uh, based on its etymology, it's based on its usage, so the way we, the way we use the word, it just, it, it means uh, right thinking or right doctrine, yes. Yes, they may not have used the word orthodox. I can't remember what they did. What they did tend to use was refer to each other as pro-Nicene. So those who were writing 
from an Orthodox standpoint, were for the Nicene Creed. They were pro-Nicene, and there were others that were anti-Nicene leading up to the council. But anyway, in our particular context, this is kind of a general meaning. In our particular context, it would be the correct uh, understanding of doctrine that is uh, reflected in the early church creeds. And and that's and we're going to be looking at some of these early church church creeds. So when I say orthodox, it's consistent with these creeds. Okay. Yes. Now you're right because there is there's the Roman Church, there's the Eastern Orthodox, and and they in their name have the word orthodox. That's why you're remembering that. But this would include like the Greek Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah. Basically, the Eastern churches and the Roman Empire, the Eastern churches are what eventually became Eastern Orthodoxy as opposed to the Western Church, which became Roman Catholic. Okay? The Coptics may be considered Eastern, but but uh, they didn't go so, too far before they started not buying into these creeds. So there's some peculiarities about the Coptic church in Egypt. And all of those churches agree with what we're saying about the Trinity. All of those churches accept the early church creeds. Yes, I would say they're part of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Right. And what I want to present here is the fact that the doctrine of the Trinity was not hammered out in a vacuum. If you'll look in uh, a typical systematic theology, the first thing they talk about is the Scriptures. The second thing they talk about is the doctrine of God. Then at the end of the doctrine of God, they start talking about the Trinity and, and Christ. And so, unfortunately, we're, we don't have the ability, or I don't have the ability to go and give you the doctrine of God that, that formed the framework for their thinking. But I want to point out some things to you. And that is, when they, when they were trying to express the Trinity as revealed in Scripture, there was, there were things they did not want to, uh, contradict. And this is the framework that was in the church fathers' minds as we don't want to contradict these things when we, when we talk about the Trinity. One is monotheism. There's one God. So we need to talk about the Trinity keeping in mind that there is only one God. God is incomprehensible. We talked about this earlier in one of the earlier sessions. No matter what you do, you're going to get to a point where you realize that it's, God is incomprehensible ultimately. We can only talk about him in creaturely words based on what's revealed in Scripture, but he's incomprehensible. He's immutable. He does not change. He's one perfect spiritual being. And by perfect, that means that kind of goes along with he can't change or he doesn't change. If he was, if he changes, that means he wasn't perfect before or he, or he wasn't perfect after. So, and then, uh, he's transcendent. We talked about that a couple of times. He's totally other. He's not, we need to maintain the distinction between creator and creature. And God is totally other. And his being is simple. We talked about 
the fact that God is not made up of parts. He's, he's not a composite being. There, there is nothing more fundamental to God than himself. And we, and we ask the question, can anything be said to make God that's not God, can anything be said to make God what he is? And the, the answer seems to be no. There are no parts in God. He's one perfect spiritual being. And that's one of the things that these guys wanted to, to stay clear of is that the three persons of the Trinity are not parts of God that come together to make God. And then finally, God's action is one. He's a single being with a single will, a single nature. And even though we see the persons of the Trinity act in the economy of God uh, in ways that we could talk about as different roles, they are all accomplishing the one operation of God. And so his, his operations are inseparable. Now you can write, jot these down and look them up on your own. I don't have time to explain them and I, some of them I couldn't explain if I wanted to. But I just wanted to take a moment to say there was a concept and a framework in which these guys were working when they hammered out the Nicene Creed. So now we're going to get to that point. And I want to do that by talking a little bit about the Nicene Creed before we actually pass out the handouts and read it. It was first, the Trinity, it's true, was first formalized by the Church at the Council of Nicaea. The Council was called by Emperor Constantine upon the recommendation of a guy named Hosius of Cordoba. Uh, who had a, a local provincial synod and said, Emperor Constantine, we need to get the church together to try and come to a consensus here because there's a lot of strange teachings being passed around. He invited, I, I think it was upward of a thousand bishops. He invited every bishop in, in the uh, Christian world at that time. 318 were in attendance both from the Latin Western Church and the Greek Church in the East. And the focus was on correcting erroneous teaching regarding the person of Christ, which is, we talked a little bit about that last time. However, this creed of, of uh, 325 A.D. was later revised and expanded as a result of a subsequent council in Constantinople in 381. So we're going to look at both of these and, ha- and look at them side by side. And when I say the Western Church, the Western Church it was writing in Latin. The Eastern Church retained the Greek language. Although they all still knew Greek, the Latin fathers were writing in Latin because of the Western Roman influence. All still part of the Holy Roman Empire. And we looked at this chart last week which shows... Two different colors, if you will. The dark blue was the geographical extent or influence of Christianity in 325 A.D. when the Nicene Creed uh, was formalized. The light blue shows the expansion 
in the subsequent two or three hundred years. Quite a difference. By 600 A.D., it was virtually the whole uh, Roman Empire or Mediterranean world. But in 325, there are pockets scattered around the Mediterranean Sea and 318 bishops from these different areas gathered in Nicaea, which is right below Constantinople by 30, 40, 50 miles, something like that. So in short, the process was like this. The main purpose of this first ecumenical that's another word. Uh, I should pause for a moment. What do you think of when you hear the word ecumenical? Is it, is it a familiar word or unfamiliar word? Is it a puzzling word? Well, it essentially means worldwide. But in our context, it refers to a council representing the whole church or the worldwide church as far as Emperor Constantine was concerned because he called bishops from the farthest reaches of Christendom come together. And since it represented the whole church, they call it an ecumenical council. But it was to resolve issues over the nature of the Son and His relationship with the Father. In particular, whether the Son had been eternally begotten by the Father from His own being, therefore having no beginning, or else created out of nothing and therefore having a beginning. And we talked about that last week. Arguments were based on Scripture and the implication of Scripture, not Greek metaphysics. When they, when they start hammering out the Trinity, it was based on re- revelation of Scripture and the implications of that revelation. Some people will say, oh, it was philosophy. It was not based on Scripture. These guys... The first time they started an argument, it was almost always from Scripture. Now, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria and his secretary, Athanasius, who we talked about, took the first position. The Son is begotten of the Father of his own being and essence. The presbyter Arius, from whom the term Arianism comes, took the second position. And as a result of this meeting, this council, it was overwhelmingly decided against the Arians. All but two of the 318 attendees signed the creed, and these two, along with Arius, were banished to Illyria. Anyway, so they were basically said, you got to get out of town. You can't stay around here. So what does the Nicene Creed say? Here's where the handouts come in. I'm going to give you a handout. If you ladies would start passing them around, if you don't already have one, raise your hand because we've got plenty, I think. This chart shows the Creed of 325 on the left, which we're going to read and talk about for a minute. But, but it also shows the revised and expanded version of 381 side by side, uh, which we're also going to talk about. But we're going to do the left the 325 Creed first and then talk about what was added and speculate as to maybe why. So I'm going to read from this chart, but you're welcome to read from the left side of your handout. So it begins, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, here's another new word for you, homoousia, we're going to talk about that in a minute, so don't worry about it, but that's that word of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and earth. God the Father, maker of all things visible and invisible. The Lord Jesus Christ, one substance with the Father. And by Him all things were made, both in heaven and earth. The Son, for who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate, took on human flesh, and was made man. He suffered and the third day rose again. He ascended into heaven and shall come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. It finishes with a paragraph that is basically a, an anathema paragraph. And they wanted to get specific for the sake of the Arians. But those who say that there was a time when the sun was not, now, remember when we talked about Arius last week, that was his famous, that's what he was known for stating. There was a time when the sun was not. So they specifically said, those who say that, or that he was not before he was begotten, or that he was made of nothing, or who say that the Son of God was of any other substance or essence, or created, or liable to change or, or have or undergo some conversion, they're condemned by the church. And that was the 325 creed. If you go back, look at all that they devoted to the third person of the Trinity <laughs> and in the Holy Spirit. But their point was this issue about the person of the Son with regard to the Father. And that's what they were focused on. The Apostles' Creed appeared in various forms from as early as 200 A.D., but its wording was not formally formally adopted by the church till like 600 A.D. So it's, it was after this, even though it showed up in uh, in more brief forms or in slightly different wording. Uh, but it, it is another creed that eventually was adopted by the church. But this was the first one from the ecumenical council. Also, think of it this way: by putting by putting these curse this cursing at the end, it, it seems like the thrust of this was of this 325 creed. This is what you can't say, right? I mean, they they stated the positives here. We believe in the God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, who, who was made man against the Gnostics and rose again and will come again. But this is saying, but here's what you cannot say. You cannot say these things. So, the Council of Constantinople, which was some 50, 60 years later, amended that. Their purpose was not to come up with a new creed, but to expand and ratify the 325 creed. 
Now this, this council was called by the Eastern Emperor Theodosius I in 381 AD. At that time, the Roman Empire had a Western Emperor and an Eastern Emperor. And Theodosius was in Constantinople. He was the Eastern Emperor. And he called this creed to confirm the Nicene Creed and deal with other matters of the Arian controversy. Because I mentioned last week, from 325 for the next 60 years, there was a lot of heated discussions about this. Arianism didn't die as a result of the 325 Creed. There were a lot of discussions. Arianism manifested itself in a couple of different forms. There were semi-Arians who were, who were trying after, after Arius was exiled, who were trying to say, look, if we just said this instead of this, they could, they could buy that language and then we could welcome them back into the fold. And so there was that kind of, um, uh, compromise discussions going on heatedly during this period of time. So this Council in 381 was to try and settle that once and for all. It was attended by only 186 bishops, mainly from the Eastern churches. And they wanted to settle two basic issues, the deity of the Holy Spirit and the true humanity of Christ, as well as confirm everything that was said in the 325 Creed. Though primarily attended by the Eastern Church, it was regarded as ecumenical and adopted by both the Church in the West and the Church in the East. So this would be the second ecumenical council. So they revised and expanded the 325 Creed, and the final version is called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which I will denote as Nicene parentheses C, because that's a... Constantinopolitan. Now, that's a seven-syllable word. We don't use seven-syllable words anymore. So the, the creed has expanded, and we're going to go over that creed. It's, it's side by side with the other one on your handout. Uh, when people today refer to the Nicene Creed, they are referring to this 381 fleshed-out version. They very seldom are referring to the abbreviated one with the anathema paragraph in 325, they're referring to the 381 creed. And that's what we're going to read now, and that's what most people mean when they say the Nicene Creed. They don't differentiate between the two. So, if you'll uh, bear with me, let's read through this. Now, you have it side by side where you can easily see where one expanded I've tried, and I don't think I was perfectly uh, successful at it, but I tried to add in bold up here on the screen the words that were added by the Second Council. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten, that's monogonese is the Greek word, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, there's that word again, homoousia, with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men in our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, now they added this part, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. And was made man. 
And he was crucified. But they add the words for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And they finished it with this. And in the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice the rest is all bold because that's where they stopped before. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And then in closing they say, And in one holy, catholic, apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Uh, Two things. The bracketed phrase, and the Son, was added by the Western Church later. I think there are good theological reasons and good scriptural reasons for adding that. But the fact is, the Western Church uh, did it on their own without asking anybody, so to speak. And they call it the filioque phrase, Greek meaning and son, from the father and the son. They added the word filioque, from the father, pater, filioque, and the son. And the Eastern Church said, you can't go change the creed. And they said, well, we, we've got good reason to. And they said, you can't go change the creed. And from that point on, whenever this phrase was added, and I think it was a couple of hundred years later that it was added by the Western Church, from that point, that became the seed of conflict that would lead to the great schism of the Eastern and Western Churches in 1000 A.D. That was the seed by the Roman bishop or pope, whatever he was, having that added unilaterally. And subsequently, the Western Church always has and the Son in the Nicene Creed. To this day, the Eastern Church does not have it in there. Pretty interesting. And the second thing I want to point out is the anathema of the 325 creed was was dropped and was replaced with this whole last paragraph. And I think uh, the difference I see is this. As I mentioned a minute ago, the 325 creed seemed to be focused on what you cannot say. This creed turns the tables and in fleshing out the 325 creed says, This is what you must say. They weren't fencing off what you cannot say. They were saying, this is what you must hold to. By phrasing it all this way. I don't think they're talking about necessarily spirit baptism, but they may have been. I mean, if you read Augustine, you're going to read stuff that makes, where he sounds like he's saying he believes in baptismal regeneration. So some of these early fathers had some ideas that we wouldn't necessarily agree with. And that may be behind some of this. I don't know, even though this was before Augustine.
Right. Right. There was no real unified agreement. Except, and so that's why I think they're just saying there's one baptism into the into Christ. Whether they're talking spiritual or physical, there's only one baptism. But that's just off the top of my head. They, we would have to call them unorthodox because they do not hold to the creeds. Right. Well, they're they're in the Anglican Communion. The Anglican Communion holds to the creeds. Right. And they may refer to the creed, but they were not raised in the creeds. And there's a difference. And it shows sometimes in their theology. Well, the 39 articles. The 39 articles call out the creeds. Oh, no, that's the, that's the Church of England. Uh, the Augsburg Confession calls out the creeds. So most Protestant churches do, except for, like Don's saying, independent Baptists, independent Bible churches. They don't formally endorse the creeds uh, specifically, even though they agree with what's taught in the creeds, by and large. For example, we would we would hear we would by and large agree with what the creeds say. Bill, today the confessing church really has more to do with the confessions that came out of the Reformation, like the Heidelberg Confession, the uh, Westminster Confession, those confessions, which incidentally those confessions call out the same doctrine that you see in these creeds. Okay, so just just in, by way of summary, if you just pull out the three things in, the, in this uh, 381 creed that directly describe the Trinity... Here they are in a little briefer form. We believe in one God, the Father, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, very God. And the word of there is ek in the Greek, and it can be translated from. Very God from very God. Begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and was made man. And and the reason they emphasize the incarnation is because that's what a lot of the heresies were denying also. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father. So we have a, a begotten, the Son is begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeds, and that's really taken from the word uh, spiration, which means breathed. The Holy Spirit was breathed from the Father, and the Western Church would say, and the Son, with, I think, good reason, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So there they've, they've completely addressed the three persons from a Trinitarian standpoint. Now, I want to talk about what a difference one iota makes. Have you ever heard that expression... There's no more difference in that than one iota. Right? Well, I want to show you where that came from. One iota. Did you see it? Did you see it pop in there? One iota. And it changes the word homoousia to homoousia. So what? 
It was the thrust of the arguments for 60 years. One iota. And here's why. Homoousia, which was used in the creed, means the same, the same substance or essence. Homo, the same, usia, essence. And that's what was in the creed. The Son is of the same essence. The same substance. Okay, now here's where the, where the uh, other guys were saying. Well, can't we just say homoousia? It's just one out. <laughs> but that means a similar substance. Not the same. And so the pro-Nicenes were again, guys were saying, no, it's not just similar, it's the same. A difference of one iota. And this is sometimes called semi-Aryan view, or they simply refer, since there was several that fell into this category, the Homoian view. The H-O-M-O-I, meaning similar substance. Now the strict Aryans, they would say the sun was heterousia. Hetero meaning opposite or different. Heterosexual, different sexes. Heterousia, a different substance. Not, not similar, different. And so the compromisers were saying if we could just say homoousia instead of homoousia, then the Aryans would could buy into that and we could welcome them all back into the fold. But they refused. And that's what difference one iota makes. Exactly. It, it's a huge difference. It was a compromise that they would not accept. So, let's look at the Nicene Creed this way. The one God subsists in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are distinguished, the three are distinguished by eternal relations of origin, begetting and proceeding. Those words come from the creed. That's how you distinguish the the Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and the Son. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. The Spirit proceeds from both. That's how they're distinguished. And the creed points out that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are to be worshipped and glorified. So here are a couple of popular graphics used to illustrate the Trinity. The one on the right is uh, taken from some church in Europe uh, showing the same thing in uh, stained glass or whatever. But it's basically the same as what is shown on the left, which some some have referred to as the Trinity shield because you can think of it as in the shape of a shield, basically. But but here's and and a lot of people find this pretty uh, pretty informative and a pretty good way of looking at it. You have God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. You could chase that around either direction. They're all God. 
but they are not each other. Does that make sense? Well, they, they would say that the Trinity does not compromise the simplicity of God because these are not parts of God. In working out redemption and how, how the, how the, how God deals with His creation. Exactly. We see the Father say in Scripture, told the Father does this, the Son does this, the Holy Spirit does this. So they were trying to capture that. Right. Right. It is a little bit confusing. And we're going to eventually talk about that. Right. Exactly. That's what Arius believed. He said God created Christ, Jesus, the second person, so through him he through Jesus he created everything else. So he was the subcontractor. Okay, is that something that you find profitable to think to look at? Because I want everybody to nod up and down yes and I'm gonna tell you what the problem about it. But here, here's the thing. If you were to look at this and then close your eyes and try and reconstruct it from memory, you would remember. How many circles would you remember? Four. What? We're talking about the Trinity. How many circles would you remember? Four. What? And there's the danger. We've got four circles, but we're talking about a triune God. And, and here's where it can, here's where it can be misleading, and I may be nitpicking here, but there's a danger of thinking that the one divine essence is kind of a hidden fourth member. That as if there's something left over in the Godhead beyond the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And, and if you have that in your mind, that the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and then the rest of the essence of God? Or something? Is there something left over? No. And that's the danger. The four circles, if they make you think that there's something left over or hidden behind the Father, Son, and the Spirit that is God, or part of God, that's wrong. Right. Well, that's what... uh that's that's where we might be getting a little off because what we need to realize is that God only exists in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There's no nothing left over. He only exists in and with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And so that's the danger of saying, here's God and then here's these three. It's only those three, really. And that just underscores Amos' point that it's it's not really logical and it's hard to comprehend. But I just want to make the point that there's nothing in God left over beyond the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Yes, I think that would be wise not to not to regard this as a picture of the Trinity, but a picture kind of describing the relationships and putting caveats on them so we understand what we're saying. But it's not a picture of the Trinity. Right. I think that's good. Robert? I expect a new graphic next week, Robert. <laughs> that, that would kind of solve it, wouldn't it? That would solve it. Very good, Robert. Appreciate that, man. Well, we showed in one of our earlier sessions how 
it's implicit as, as well as almost explicit in Scripture. So I think you could show them from the Scriptures. We talked about the uh, Great Commission where Matthew says, in Matthew it says, Go ye therefore and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not names. Not the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the name. And so, going along with this, the uh, the name of God is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is first get him saved by giving him the gospel. <laughs> then, then he'll be more likely to agree when you talk about the Trinity. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, Mark. I went ahead and talked ahead of myself and said these very things. God subsists or exists in the Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's nothing left over. I want to talk about the word person. We had this in the first session. I've referred to it a couple of times. I'm just going to mention it in passing. Person is an imperfect word to denote the distinctions in the Godhead. Why? From memory? Because when we think of persons, we think of individual beings. But in God, there are not three beings alongside or separate from one another. Our triune God is one being with one divine nature who exists in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And there's where there's where you have to say, I, I can't understand that. that. That's no fault because that's how we think. And so I just want you to be aware that when we say a person of the Trinity, we're not saying an individual being and the Father's another being, and the Holy Spirit's another being. There's only one being. But the word person is something we've got to deal with. So I'm just asking that you be cognizant of the fact that it's imperfect in that sense, and people don't realize it, and therefore I think they can come up with some faulty ideas. Right. Ontological versus economical. We're going to get into that. I understand what you're saying. A lot of people will use that analogy. I, I don't prefer it, actually. The image of God is what sets us apart from other creatures. I, I know, but I mean, using that as an analogy, we talked about analogies from nature. The analogy of my physical being is a picture of God and His Trinitarian essence. I don't think it holds up. So now let's have some more vocabulary. This is a day for new words. I just wanted to show you these words for one reason. If you are going to read about the Trinity with any seriousness, you're going to run across these words. And so by introducing them to you, then you're not going to go, what in the world? But for example, English, Latin, and Greek going down. In English... We say three persons, one being, recognizing that that's a synonym for essence, nature, and substance, as I use it. You could say three persons, one substance. In fact, Latin, the word is substantia, where we get the word substance. So 
So in Latin they would say three personae, one substantia. They would also they could also say three substantiae. And we could also say three subsistences, one being. I'm, I'm saying that because I'd rather use a technical word that people didn't really have a good grasp of than the word person, which gives them the wrong idea. But we don't. You're going to always see them talking about the three persons of the Trinity. And then in the Greek, three hypostases, one usia. We talked about homoousia, same substance, three hypostases, three prosopa, three persons, one essence, one substance, one being. So we have a job of balancing unity and diversity. If you overemphasize God's oneness, you can end up saying something like the three persons are simply modalism. The heresy of modalism. Wearing three masks, manifesting himself in three ways, wearing three costumes by a single person. That's if you over, overemphasize the oneness. And, and some people do that. You'll find that. On the contrary, if you overemphasize the threeness, you end up with three gods. And that's the danger of thinking of persons as beings. If you have three divine beings that somehow come together into a unity, you're bordering on tritheism right there. Or you have a senior god and two lesser gods, which is how Arianism and monarchianism or those other heresies tended to look at it. So you do need to be careful because you can go to one extreme or the other. So as we come to the close of this session, and it's just about time to close it, I'm, I'm asking this because I'd like your feedback. What of God's providence? What do we think of God's providence? The early creeds are certainly not inspired or infallible like Scripture, although they've been tried and tested by the church for almost 2,000 years and found to be true. They're not like Scripture. They are to be recognized and endorsed only insofar as they agree with Scripture. In my mind, it's hard to believe that God would allow an assembly of bishops representing virtually all of Christendom at that time to come up with a conclusion that was wrong. This is God's providential care of the church. But I'm asking that because I think there's a way you can, I don't know how you argue that definitively, but doesn't God care for his church? Something as momentous as the first ecumenical council, would he allow them to come up with something that was completely off base? I don't know. I don't think so. Any comments on God's providence? Right. That's true. And the creeds have stood the test, in my, in my opinion, even though when the Roman Catholics started going off in all of these other things, Okay, just a thought. So in summary, the doctrine of God provided the framework for the early fathers in describing the Trinity. The Nicene Creed of 325 addressed primarily the Father and Son. The Creed of 381 fleshed it out 
and more fully addressed appropriately so the Holy Spirit. And there's some unique terminology associated with the development of all of that. You've seen those some of those strange words tonight. But hopefully they'll help you in uh, your own study. Next week will be session five. And we will spend the whole time, and I hope I can get it done in one session, on the nature of the Trinity. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for keeping my spirit calm. I thank you for those that are in attendance tonight. I, I pray that your spirit superintended everything that went on tonight and that you would show us those things that are true and help us to glory in your triune self and worship you as our triune God. For it's in your son's name that we ask this. Amen.